So we're continuing through 1 and 2 Thessalonians together and talking about growing in the last days. And if that topic, the last days, the end of all time, the end of the world, if that stuff scares you or confuses you or both, uh, then I really want to encourage you. There's a book on the table that you can take home. Uh, it'd be great if you gave us three quid toward it. That would be nice. If, if you don't have three quid, don't worry. Um, take this. Uh, you can read it, bring it back, uh, or keep it. It's up to you. And it gives a really good framework uh, about this issue. Uh, and it kind of, it, I, I like this book because it tends to sort of give a, a generic enough of a framework that it, it covers what most Christians would believe without getting into the things that we disagree on. So if, if you want some basics, check this out, okay? Is my mic in the right place? Are you happy with that? Okay. All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So let's read it, and then we will get into it together. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And Father, we thank you so much that you've laid out in your word what your plan is for the ages, what your plan is for this world. And Lord, as, as scary as this can be, as hard sometimes as this can be to, to get our head around, we thank you, Lord, for the great hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would be ready for your soon return, Lord, that we would be loving your soon return. Give us that heart, we pray. Help us to see this as not just something that we, can't that we can't avoid, but something that we should, as believers, look forward to. And Lord, may this motivate us to trust you and to take the gospel out to anyone who will listen. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. So, it was Friday morning. These things always happened on a Friday morning. And, and I should have known it was coming because every Thursday I would be warned. Be warned by my geometry teacher that there's a test on Friday morning. But the thing was, the first semester of geometry, it was pretty easy. And so I found that without studying, without sort of putting too much work into it, I actually could ace the tests. In fact, the first quarter 
of the year, I got straight A's in geometry. Yes, me. Straight A's. I know, it's hard to believe. And then the second part of that first semester, the second quarter of the year, it kind of went down to B's, and then C's, and then D's. And so when I was starting to get D's, I was starting to get panicky. I was starting to really worry. And so I show up on this Friday thinking, what am I going to do? I'm not ready for this test. And lo and behold, guess what happened? A big fat F. I ended up failing geometry. I ended up having to job geometry and take French instead. Oh, it's painful. I'm bad at maths, but I'm worse at languages. And all this happened because I wasn't prepared. And the funny thing is, when, when you're not ready for something, you're dreading when it's going to happen. But when you are ready for something, you're looking forward to that thing. When you can prepare yourself for something, it helps you to look forward to that thing, especially when you understand that that thing is good. And this is kind of what we have going on in 1 Thessalonians 5. We have Paul here continuing to sort of unpack things and answer some questions that these guys probably had, and they had kind of given to Timothy when Timothy went to visit them. And, and, and it's important to, that we understand, that we remember that this group in Thessalonica, this group was a, a group of believers. They had only been Christians for weeks or months. They're going through really difficult times. Last week we saw that they wrestled with this idea, what about the people who believed in Jesus that died before Jesus came back? What happened to them? And Paul gave them a great comfort. And, and, and they didn't know, they didn't know what happened. Now he seems to be dealing with something that they knew that he had already taught them, but maybe they were forgetting, or maybe they were just worrying about. He's talking about the fact of Christ's return. He mentioned it last week, but this week he really starts to talk about, listen, here's what we know, and here's how we can be ready. So, so what's amazing about the scriptures is it tells us where, where we all came from. It tells us here's how all things begun, but also it tells us here's how all things end. We know how it ends. We know how this world comes to an end. We know the purposes God has for this universe. We know exactly what Jesus is doing with the world that he's created, that he pierced. We know. And we know that how it ends really is in a world that we all want. When Jesus comes back and he brings the kingdom with him in its fullness, it's the world that we all want. We know how it ends. The problem is we're not all ready for that. And Paul wants to make sure that the people of Thessalonica and the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we, as God's people, are prepared for this. That we're ready to see Jesus when he comes back. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be prepared for Christ's return today. So let's look at the first couple verses. I want to give you three main things. The first one is, we're prepared by what we know. Paul says in verse 1, he says, considering the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, we saw last week, didn't we, about the times and seasons, how, how Jesus had said to his disciples right before his ascension, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. And Paul's kind of echoing that here. He says in verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For some of you Older saints, you might remember a movie of that title back in the 70s, A Thief in the Night. Very cheesy Christian movie that scared a lot of people. 
But it was talking about this issue, this issue of Jesus' return specifically, that we know, Paul's saying, look, we know, he's saying, you guys already know this, I already told you this, Paul's saying to them, and we know that Christ's return will come unexpectedly. It comes at a time that we don't expect. Jesus says this in, in uh, Matthew 24, 36. He says, but of that day, speaking of the day of his return, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And Peter says a similar thing in his second epistle uh, to Peter 3.10. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Some heavy, crazy, scary stuff. But it's important that we know this. Paul, Paul's saying, listen, you know this stuff's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen when you don't expect. Now, this is really important for us to remember because sometimes, especially the longer we go in history, therefore the closer we get to Christ's return, and the more stuff that's going down in the world, the more things that get confusing or stressful, the more we can kind of say, this must be the time. And we try to calculate dates and figure out what's going to happen, and that's just pointless. It's pointless because we know, Jesus said, no one knows when I'm going to come back except the Father. Now, obviously, Jesus knows now, <laughs> but nobody knew then. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. That's the point. Now, what gets really sobering is what he says in verse 3. He says, for when they, notice the change of pronoun there. He started off saying you, now he says when they. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now when he talks about they, he's probably really just talking about unbelievers. Those who, who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is God's only begotten son. And one of the things that is is common, not just about people in the last days, but about humanity in general, is that we love to try to give ourselves a sense of security. It's normal. It's understandable. But we are experts at building up really a false sense of security when we shouldn't have security, especially when we're young. Man, I remember when I was a I was, when I was a young person, I was a real adrenaline junkie. Sometimes I feel like I still can be that, and then I'd try something, and I can't walk for a day. But I used to be a real adrenaline junkie, so I used to do free climbing. You guys know what free climbing is? Like rock climbing without ropes. And we, we'd go to places that if you, if you slipped at all, you're dead. I mean, it was just a dumb thing to do. But we were cool, you know, getting pictures, and, you know, was, we thought it was awesome. Because I, I wasn't afraid when I should have been afraid. It's funny how we can be this way. It's interesting because God says to his people in the Old Testament, he, he warns them of having this kind of attitude. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19, God's trying to reestablish his covenant. He's kind of reminding his people of his covenant, but he's warning them about being hard-hearted, about assuming they're okay when they're not okay. And so it may happen, God says through Moses, when he hears, a person hears the words of this curse, that he still blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my own heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Now he's using this idea of a drunkard as a sort of a metaphor for someone who thinks they're okay when they're obviously not. And if you've ever been around a drunk person, you know this exactly what it's like. Hey, buddy, I don't think you should be driving. I'm absolutely fine. I'll be, there's no problem whatsoever. 
It's amazing how daft people get when they've drank too much. And so what, what God is saying through Moses in Deuteronomy 29 is, this is how it is when people think, I can do whatever I want and God will be fine with it. They're going, what? That's like a drunk person thinking they're able to drive. Very dangerous indeed. And so, so what Paul's talking about here is he's saying, listen, we know that Christ is going to come unexpectedly, and we know when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. He's coming back to judge. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there was all these predictions about the Messiah, about God's chosen king, and he would come as this conquering king. So that when Jesus came and he was doing the things that the Messiah would only be able to do, like supernatural things, when he was doing that, a lot of people thought, oh, he must be the Messiah. And so they're waiting for him then to conquer the Romans, who were the oppressors of Israel at the time, and thinking this is when God's kingdom is going to be set up. But what, is, what does he do? No, he actually allows himself to be treated badly, to be marginalized, to be ultimately rejected by Israel themselves, and to be crucified by the Romans. He does that because it's part of God's plan for him to pay for the sins of all mankind. And so when he does this, and then he raised from the dead, he, we'll, we'll talk about this, this, this next week, he, after he's raised from the dead, even then the disciples are like, I don't get it. How did you ever die in the first place? You're the Messiah. Not understanding that there's two comings. He comes the first time as a, as a suffering servant, but he comes a second time as the conquering king. And this is important for us to understand. This is important for us to see as good news. I was reading some statistics this week about human trafficking and how it's on the increase. And it's amazing how, and, I, and they're, they're trying to connect, especially when it comes to sex trafficking, the increase of pornography use and the increase of sex trafficking. So we, we can think, you might justify in your mind, oh, I'm not hurting anybody by looking at pornography, but actually you are feeding the sex trade. And you are feeding sex slavery. You need to understand that. And, and they were talking about this. And it's interesting to me, when we live in a day uh, where, where the most powerful nations in the world are all about trying to, to protect the dignity and the equality of women, and yet sex trade is going through the roof. It's interesting, too, as well, that you know, there's actually more people who are living in famine conditions now than in any time in history, and we produce far more food than we actually need to feed the entire world. Why? Because it's not rain and or drought that causes these famines now. It's despots and, and wicked leaders that were either too cowardice or, un, or, or un, uh, too impotent to actually do anything about. And we see these kinds of injustices and we think, Oh, something should be done. And the truth is, the good news is something will be done when Jesus comes back. The scary thing is, is that what happens is as mankind, we want to say peace and safety will solve the world's problems. How's that been going so far? Not so great. See, we need someone to save us, both corporately and individually. And Paul's saying, listen, you know that, that as much as Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, look, you are being persecuted. You're the ones that are on the kind of receiving end of injustice right now. But you need to know that's not forever. 
We need to know there's a God who will bring justice, a God who loves justice and will bring justice when Christ returns. Interesting how he describes the, the coming like this. He says destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Jesus used a similar, uh, uh, he used the same metaphor. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation from Matthew chapter 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is, is talking about the time of his coming. It says, Jesus told his disciples, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of war, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations will, uh, will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many places of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pangs with more to come. This is how birth pangs work. First, the woman gets a bit of a niggle at a certain amount of weeks in her pregnancy, and then they get more and more intense as her body is preparing to deliver this child. They get more frequent, they get closer together, they get more intense. And Jesus is saying, listen, and, and Paul is saying as well, listen, that this is what we can expect. These kinds of things that Jesus said we're going to expect from the, the, the time between his first coming and his second coming, these things are going to get more intense, they're going to get more frequent, and they're going to indicate that this is indeed his word's going to come to pass. He's going to come to pass and bring justice finally. Now it's important for us to, to understand this because when it comes to unbelievers, they want to deny the indication of birth pangs. They go, well, yeah, things are bad, but they're not as bad as they used to be. It is interesting, though, isn't it? it? Isn't it interesting that in the 20th century, we made such huge steps forward, such advances in things like medicine and things like technology, massive steps forward in those two areas. The potential to save people's lives, to improve the quality of their lives, is huge. And yet in the 20th century, more people were killed in, by war than in the previous, all the previous centuries of history combined. Why? Because there's something wrong with us. These Perth banks are just kind of proving it. Now, we know Christ returns to judge, and it's important that we see this last little phrase in verse 3, where he says, and they shall not escape. You see, the fact that, that no one escapes the judgment of Christ should motivate us as Jesus followers to trust him. God, I have to trust you. If your call on me as my authority, as my Lord, is that I trust you, I have to trust you, but also that we would share him. If Jesus is Lord, we should share him as such. The Bible says this in the book of Colossians. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, he says, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. So the, the reality that Jesus comes to judge, he's the final judge, he's the judge that we can't escape, should motivate us as Christians to go, gosh, people need to know this. God, I need wisdom to know how to bridge the gap. Because the truth is, he can't just go around the street saying, he's coming back, repent or die. I mean, you could do that, but they just kind of dismiss you as a crazy person. Even though what you're saying is true, you're going to look like a crazy person. 
So we have to have wisdom. God, how do we walk with wisdom? How do we live as those who recognize that Jesus is Lord, he is trustworthy, he is coming back, and to point people to him, to consider him, to to warn about being on the wrong side of him? How do we do that? Well, he says in verse 4 and 5, he wants us something else that we first need to know before we're able to do that. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all, notice, sons of light and sons of the day. He says, we are not of, of night nor of darkness. Now, what he's talking about there is not our moral superiority, because if you feel that way, you need to know you're not. As a Christian, you're not morally superior. What he's talking about there is your spiritual position. That if you know that Jesus is Lord, if you recognize, yep, he's the one that we have to follow, he's the one we have to trust, even if you're confused about a whole lot of stuff, if you know that bit, you need to know it's because the Holy Spirit taught you that. It's because God's doing a work in your life. This is this idea behind the phrase son of. It means that you're of the substance of or that you're, a, you're kind of, you've been trained up in. And so really what he, he wants his, his readers to remember, Paul wants his readers to remember that, that we know it's our Father who sent the light into the world. The reason we're not in darkness, we're not, life isn't obscure, that we're not blind to what God's doing in history is because God himself pierced history in Jesus. This is how John talks about Jesus as the light. John says, in John's gospel, he says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Later on in, uh, uh, in the same gospel, in chapter 12, verse 36, we read, put your trust in the light while there's still time. This is what Jesus says. Then you will become children of the light. And then after these sayings, Jesus went away, and this is significant, and he was hidden from them. In other words, Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. He tells people, listen, recognize who I am. Learn of of me. Learn how to see the world through me. That's what it means that he's the light. Learn to see things through me, and in doing so, do that while you still can, because there's a time coming when you won't be able to. And then to illustrate that, he walks away. It's sobering stuff, isn't it? But this sobriety is not about us, as, especially as Jesus followers, being afraid. It's about us being prepared to take seriously what God said to us. We need to be prepared by what we know, what God has clearly said about these things. But also, we need to be prepared by how we live. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, we need to understand what he's talking about here, why he's using these two terms of sleeping and drinking, or not sleeping or not being drunk. When he talks about sleep here, remember last, last week we talked about sleep, Paul using sleep as a metaphor for death. Now, he's going to use sleep as a metaphor for death in this section later on. But here, sleep is a metaphor, not for death, but for uh, lethargy or, or being unmotivated or being apathetic spiritually. 
So when he talks about sleep, he's talking about that attitude. It's like, eh, whatever. I believe in Jesus, but whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's that kind of attitude towards spiritual things, towards following our God. I mean, if you think about this just logically, it's a bit nuts, isn't it? If we're talking about the creator of the universe who took on flesh and walked this earth, and we're saying, we now know the God of the universe. He has adopted us into his family. We're his children. We believe that he paid the price for our sin. If that is reality, should that not radically change everything about our lives? Seriously. Isn't that just kind of common sense? Think about how radical your life would change if you were plucked out of your current job and said you have to be uh, an MP. Brexit's such, so messed up, you are now going to be an MP and you're going to help with this Brexit nonsense. How radical would your life change? You'd probably run to Canada or something, you know. <laughs> it would change radically. Well, how much more if you've come into a relationship with the creator of the universe? And so what, what he's saying is, look, there, there's going to be, our lives are going to be characterized by something new. So we're not going to be unmotivated or apathetic spiritually. Now, we might be tempted in this, especially as we talk about the context. We might be tempted to be this way, but that's not how we should be. Paul's saying, look, don't sleep. Don't be apathetic. Don't be casual about these things. Now, when he talks about being drunk, it means drunk. <laughs> it does mean drunk, but it also, listen, means more of that. It kind of represents a licentious sort of party lifestyle. Don't just think like, you know, uni student clubbing or something. Poor uni students get picked on for that. It's not just them. It really is, is a mindset that says, my life is really about my pleasure. What I can do to make myself comfortable and happy. See, believers in Jesus are not to be characterized by comfort and pleasure. Now, don't confuse me. Don't get, don't, don't get me confused. Okay, don't get me, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that you can't experience comfort. We're called to comfort one another. It's okay to go home and take a nap on the couch today. That's okay. Don't, I'm going to do that. So don't worry about that. Enjoying a good meal is a good and biblical thing to do. We're not talking about anti-pleasure. God's invented pleasure. But that's not what we live for. See, we look forward to a time, as it says in Psalm 16, when, when we experience the joy that's forever, and a place where there's pleasures forevermore. You know what that is? At the right hand of God. And so now we don't live for pleasure because we know whatever pleasure we have now, when we get it, we're thankful for it, but where we have now is temporary. It's, it's a shadow of the real substance that we have waiting for us when we see God face to face. This is what he's getting at when he says, listen... Don't be sleeping. Don't be lethargic or apathetic. Don't be getting drunk. Don't live for pleasure. In fact, this is what Jesus said again in, in the same all of it discourse. This is Luke's version of it. Jesus says in, in Luke 21, Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. So it's not just everything's fun, but everything's all-consuming. And that, and that day, the day he returns, will close on you suddenly like a trap. 
and it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. But always, be always on watch, Jesus said, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may able, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus calls us to live a different way. We're prepared for his coming by living for him now. One of the reasons why we often aren't excited about Jesus coming back is because there's something that we want more than him. So when I was in Bible college and we were talking about these things at at quite an in-depth rate, we'd all say, oh man, I, I want Jesus to come back. But after I get married, I'd really like to get married. Then I got married and I thought, yeah, Lord, I want you to come back. But it'd be nice to have some children. Own a home. I'd like to visit such and such a place. There's always something else that we think, yeah, Jesus coming back is good, but this is, that's crazy. He, he, he's saying, Paul's saying, why would we think this way? Paul's saying, no, listen. Remember, these, are, these people, the Thessalonians, they're going through some seriously difficult times for their faith. And he's saying, yeah, it's really, really tough. But guess what? The good stuff's coming. The Lord's bringing it with him. Then he says in verse 8, this is interesting, okay, about how we're to live. This is the positive bit. He says in verse 8, he calls us, he calls the Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit calls us as well, but let us who are of the day be sober. That doesn't mean not just It doesn't mean just not being drunk. That is that. But it's also to think clearly. He says, notice, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, breastplate and helmet, do you guys know what those things have in common? What are they? They're protective gear. What do you use them for? When do you use them? When you're in war. In other words, listen, when we're talking about being prepared by how we live, one, yeah, we can't be characterized by comfort and pleasure, but we do need to see ourselves as equipped for conflict. Now, this is really important. This is where, where if that soundbite goes out without a context, I'm going to look like a crazy person. This is not some sort of holy war that we're involved in as far as us being aggressive or violent. It's a breastplate of love and faith. It's a helmet of hope of salvation. First of all, they're defensive sort of uh, armor. It, it keeps you from getting hurt, for one. There's no, in this context at least, there's no offensive weapon. But there's this reality, listen, there's a reality that, that this is kind of how we're equipped. I, I want you to think about what this is. If you're wearing a breastplate, what's it protecting? Your vital organs, your heart. And if you're in a situation where you're waiting for Jesus to come back and you just are counting the days because it is really seriously difficult to follow him, you're going to struggle with what? Bitterness. Your heart's going to get hard. It's going to be tough. And you're going to need that breastplate of faith and love. You're going to need that protection of knowing, okay, God, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know why my life seems harder than so-and-so's life. I don't know why I'm in this season or I've been, uh, been in this circumstance, but God, I have to trust you or my heart will get hard. And God, you've got to teach me to love. Interesting. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 12, 
And because, this is, again, speaking of these last days, he says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. We need this breastplate. We need this protection. We need God to teach us to trust him and to keep loving him when things get tough. Because the truth is, when we are victims of injustice, when that lawlessness is pointed towards us, we just start thinking, God, it's just too hard. Remember, following Jesus means fulfilling the commands that he gives us like, love your enemies. This is part of the putting on the breastplate of love and faith. God, I, I trust you, and I want to love people who don't love me. I want to do this. Guys, this is important too, because it, it does connect to this idea of, that we talked about before, that the Lord wants us to be motivated to share Jesus with other people. And it's hard. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I, I've had a chance, or I've had circumstances where I'm trying to share with someone about the Lord, and they're basically like, just give it up, mate. I don't want to hear it. Back off. And you go, okay. And you're just thinking, whatever, I tried. And you kind of smugly walk away. As if that person's soul is any less at risk. Instead of loving them enough to be broken, oh, Lord, they're rejecting you. I did the same thing. Would you please do in them what you did in me? Don't let my heart get hard towards that person that's pushing me away and rejecting your gospel. Help me to love those people. You know, the Bible talks about, I think it's 1 Peter 3.15 says that, uh, that we should always, we should uh, set, us, set apart God and Christ in our hearts as holy and always be ready to give a defense or a reason for the hope that is within us. And when Peter writes that, he's writing in the context of believers who are suffering greatly for their faith. And it's interesting that he says, be ready to give a reason for those who ask for your hope. Because the, the, the picture he's painting there is, is believers who are suffering greatly at the hands of unbelievers, yet they still demonstrate hope. They still have on this breastplate of love and, and, and faith, they still have on this helmet of hope. And so people go, why do you still have hope when we treat you so bad? And you get a chance to say, because of Jesus. And there's no greater witness. This is what he's talking about. See, we're prepared to meet him when we desire, Lord, we want to bring as many people to us with heaven with us as possible. Even if that means we have to suffer to see them come to faith. This is what he's talking about. Interesting, this idea of the hope of, of salvation. Helmet goes on your head. It, it, there's two things going on there. One is a picture of sort of a protection from a, a death blow. That in a sense of no matter what, you're going to survive this thing. But it's also this idea of protecting your thinking. Think about this. How, how, can, how often do you struggle with condemnation? Do you ever feel like, you know what, you're just not good enough to be a Christian? You must not really be, belong to God because you just don't love him as you should and you just feel like I'm a failure and I'm condemned. Do you ever feel that way? You know what we need? We need to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Lord, I have to believe that I can expect to see you face to face because of what you've done, not because of what I do. 
You ever been really confused about your salvation, wondering maybe God doesn't want me, especially when things are difficult? If God loves me, how come this, everything's falling apart? I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to follow Jesus and, and, and tell people about Jesus and love other people. I'm trying to do the right thing, yet things are falling apart. You ever get confused about that? Do you know what you need? The hope, the helmet of the hope of salvation. You need to put that on and say, well, you know what? No, I belong to the Lord. I'm his. This is how, this is how we're prepared. It's, it's so important that we understand this, guys. Listen, that God wants us to be ready for what he's doing in these last days. Things all get, are going to get worse before they get better, and he wants us to be ready. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Isn't that a clear and sober picture of what we need to be about? Now I know that you're probably, some of you are probably thinking, I like it better when he preaches on love. When he talks about just heaven, I don't, the suffering, but I'm not too happy about this. I get it, but you know what? I want you to be prepared. God wants you to be prepared. It's hard to follow Jesus, but it's worth it to follow Jesus. We're prepared by how we live. And now here's where the really good stuff comes in too, where the real hopeful stuff comes in. If you're confused about the, hope of, uh, uh, the helmet of the hope of salvation, Paul's going to lay it out here. Look at verse 9. He says, therefore, oh, that's the wrong one. He says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. See, when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to judge. He is going to pour out his wrath. That's a reality. But we, as Jesus followers, have not been appointed to wrath. This is what it means to receive Christ. To receive Christ means to say, Lord, you are worthy to be followed because you have died for my sins. You have taken the wrath of God that I deserve on yourself so that you can say, I am completely forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're, re you're recognizing not that, 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 that the, the judgment you should get, Jesus has already paid for. And because of that, he's worthy to be followed. See, what we're talking about here is God wants us to be prepared by who we trust. We're trusting Him. We're trusting His promises. God promises that Christ's death is enough. He promises that. Listen to this, 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the Spirit. I love that phrase, once for all time. Listen, I, I, I don't care what sins you've been guilty of, what sins you've committed, Christ died for those sins. There's an there's a opportunity for you to be forgiven. God wants you to be right with him. God's not threatening you with wrath. God's saying the wrath is already there. You're, we're already guilty before we're Christians. We're already guilty. 
But Christ came to remove that guilt, to pay for that guilt. Do you believe that promise? He goes on to say in the second part of verse 10, he says that Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we live together for him. Now this is when he's using sleep again as that metaphor for death. So he's saying, look, Christ died for us so that whether we've already died or we're still waiting for him to come back, we know we're going to live together with him. This is kind of, kind of going back to what he was saying in chapter 4 that we talked about last week. The idea here is simple. God is promising that we will live together forever. That's a great hope. Listen to this. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. This is what Jesus says to his disciples when he's telling them that he has to go away and they're beginning to click that maybe he's going to die and they're wondering what's going on. He says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, have not, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. See, see here's, the, here's the reality. When we know that Christ is who he said he is, and we know that when he comes back, he's the final judge. He's going to bring that final judgment. And we believe that he's the light of God sent to the world so that we can know what truth is. When we know that, we're prepared. We're prepared because, we, Lord, we know. We know what truth is. As hard as it might be to swallow, it's still, we know it, it's there. When we are living, not for our pleasure or our comfort, but wanting to know Christ better, when we are living in such a way that we're saying, okay, Lord, I know it's going to be difficult, but help me to walk in love, help me to walk in faith, help me to walk in hope. We're prepared. But all of that is dependent upon us being prepared by who we trust, that we believe the very promises of God. We believe when he says what Christ did is enough. We believe that he says, the greatest thing I can give you is myself, and you're going to be with me forever. That's why he says in verse 11, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. This is interesting. Because to comfort, in this context, it's the idea that we are saying, <laughs> that we say to one another, that we encourage one another, Hey, listen, because of Jesus, we're going to be together forever. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right in Christ. We can know that for a fact. We comfort one another in that. Hey, it's tough right now. It's difficult, but it's all going to be okay because Jesus is Lord. We need to comfort each other in that, encourage each other in that. People go, oh, that's just wishful thinking. It would be if Jesus hadn't resurrected, but he did. Let's comfort each other in this. It's going to work out no matter how bad it gets here. It's going to work out in the end. When the Lord comes back, we can trust that. But also he says, edify one another. Do you know what it means to edify? To edify means to build according to plan. It's this idea that, that there's a plan of what you're to build and you build according to that plan. Here's the plan. The plan is that you become like Jesus so you can enjoy Jesus forever. Here's what we do. We build each other up towards that. 
In other words, we don't just say to each other, hey, because of Jesus, we're always going to, to be together. But we also say, because we're always going to be together, let's grow to be more like Jesus. Let's encourage each other to be more like Jesus. This is us being prepared. The Apostle Paul, at the very end of his life, he wrote a letter to his kind of son of the faith, Timothy. And he knew that he was going to die. He knew he was going to be executed. And Paul's life hasn't been easy. You can read Paul's testimony and, uh, in the Gospels and in some of the letters he wrote. And his life hadn't been easy. But this is what Paul says at the end of his life. He says, Now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all, notice, who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You know what? I am by no means a perfect Christian, not even close. There's still areas in my life that, I, that I'm just so ashamed of. I think, Lord, I should have been so much more mature by now in this area. But you know what I'm confident of? I'm confident because of who Jesus is that, and because of what he's done for me that when I see him face to face, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So that when I stand before Jesus because of what he's done, though my works would be judged by fire, there'll probably be a lot of stuff that just gets poofed and burned away, there's going to be some stuff that remains and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And because of that, I long for that day. After high school, after barely graduating American high school, I became a Christian. God just got a hold of my life and radically saved me. And about a year and a half later, I found myself in Bible college. Then I'm, a guy who barely graduated high school is studying postgraduate level stuff. And I'm going, oh, this is really hard. But a funny thing happened. As I sought the Lord and I prepared, I began to get good grades. I was passing my tests. And I got to the point that I was not regretting or fearing tests because I knew that test was simply to show me how much I had learned. The good that God was building into my life. Hey, when you see God face to face, as a Jesus follower, you know what you can expect? You can expect to see all the good that God's done in your life. And nobody ever sees him face to face and says, is this it? We all, we see the picture in Revelation, we all have a crown put on our head and we realize that crown is actually not, it's a reward to us, but really it's all because of the work of God. And so guess what we do? We take that crown and we cast it at his feet. Because he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But we say, Lord, you are Lord and worthy of all praise. And we just are so glad to be with you forever. <clears throat> Here's the question. Are you longing for his appearing? Or are you fearing his appearing? Is this good news for you? Or is this kind of a, uh, kind of makes my... Sunday, a bit of a drag.
you know you're ready for something when you're looking forward to it. Are you looking forward to the Lord's return? Father, I pray that you would help us to long for the coming of Jesus, that we would be able to say, just like the writer of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Please, Lord, would you... Would your hand be heavy on them that they would know their need for your forgiveness. They would know their need to surrender their life to you. And I pray, Lord, for all the questions that are surrounding this topic, Lord, would you give us the courage to ask, believing that you have the answer that you are indeed the light of the world. Father, I pray you would help us to trust you that we'd be prepared to see you face to face. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.